1: This week on P.A. Books, Beverly Tomek, author of Slavery and Abolition in Pennsylvania. Beverly Tomek is the author of Slavery and Abolition in Pennsylvania. Why did you write this book?
0: Well, the simple answer is the P.H.A. series asked me to cover the topic, but um, what really led me there was my previous work in abolition, anti-slavery, all the various movements in Pennsylvania. And Uh, we wanted a synthesis.
1: So you mentioned the PHA, the Pennsylvania Historical Association. Yes. Uh, How does this fit into their series?
0: Um, Well, we kind of revamped the series a few years ago. And we started by, we made a partnership with Temple to publish the books. And so then we started, we took some of the best books from the past in the series and reissued them, redid them to fit Temple's guidelines. And this is the second completely new one in the series that we've done and the whole point of that series is to have a synthesis which would give you an overview of a topic give you enough to you know go look further if you want to know more about a specific angle but they're not you know by any means a tome comprehensive so we thought it was a good point to kind of synthesize where abolition scholarship is today And it felt like the right venue for it.
1: Now you write in the book that uh, much of the story of northern slavery remains hidden. Why?
0: Well, a big part of it is it's not like, you know, you go to Georgia, Alabama, even Texas, and you see plantations. Up here you don't, right? Slavery was a different nature up here. So there aren't the kind of visible landmarks. There's also the mythology. So when I went into grad school, I live in Texas. I've always lived there. But... I've been fascinated by Quakers and anti-slavery and I even went into it naively as a grad student. You know, Pennsylvania, yeah, good guys, they never had slavery, they had people fighting against it and it was you know, early in grad school, but still grad school where I realized, holy cow, yeah they did. That's why they had the first abolition. So, um there's that myth though that's out there in the world that abolition is It sort of becomes the legacy of what is Pennsylvania early history and slavery not so much. And so, you know, in the last decade or so, more people are covering that and putting it together because it makes sense, right? You have slavery, which leads to abolition, which then once it's abolished in the state, the movement becomes to go national. But there was no national until they took care of local. And it all fits together.
1: Uh, When did enslaved Africans first come to the Mid-Atlantic area?
0: Oh, very early. Um, Let's see. There's all that hubbub about the 1619 Project, talking about slavery coming in the South and it being a thing. It wasn't much past that, that it's in the Mid-Atlantic. Slavery built the Mid-Atlantic, built Pennsylvania, built all of these states, or what would become states. So they... Enslaved labor built the foundation, even of Pennsylvania.
1: Uh, How significant was Philadelphia as a slave trade port?
0: It was a major port. Um, One point I found in a lot of the sources that until I really sat and thought about it, it didn't register. But when you think about it, it kind of affects how you see things. And that is trading enslaved human beings Even in Philadelphia, it was no different than trading any other good in the sense of there was no stigma to it. There was no um, feeling of that being ill-gotten gains when you got money from selling humans. It was just another trading good. Uh, There's a picture, I believe, that I have in the book of one of the the main trading houses. You could go be having a meal while they auction humans. That even happened in Philly, unfortunately.
1: Now, uh, you say that the North benefited from a system of human bondage that was even more varied and complex than the slavery in the South. Uh, What were some of the differences between the the two forms of slavery?
0: Yes. Um, Well, when we think of the South, and again, even within the South, it's complex. But typically in the South, you've got bigger holdings and you've got task system where you have a whole group of enslaved people. And you say, okay, you know, take care of 10 bushels of whatever your crop is, and if you finish that at the end of the day, you can have a little free time. And then you have the gang system, where you have an overseer standing over in rows of people working in the fields. Up here, it's not quite like that. Um, Enslaved people lived in the house, usually with... The, I say quote, owner, because I don't like the idea that people owned people, but um, they lived in the same quarters. They did housework. They did very highly skilled work blacksmithing, uh, chimney sweeping, all kinds of things that are just, we just today think of as jobs. We don't think of that as, you know, an enslaved job, whereas it's easy to think of agriculture, or at least Southern. As, you know enslaved work well up here there was agriculture but it was more um, small-scale there was also um, the iron industry that was a major industry to employ enslaved workers so industry all kinds of stuff
1: how did the iron industry become a major uh, user of slave labor
0: well just like how um, South Carolina became a major grower of rice. Enslaved people brought certain skills that they had with them. And then as the skills or things developed that you need, you need iron, you need to know how to fi- to make it. They had some knowledge from Africa. And their knowledge got pulled into how to make it grow and, and happen as an industry. And so from there, they be- they were sort of foundational to it.
1: I. Uh- were the, the enslaved Africans who were brought into the Philadelphia area, were they specifically chosen by, for skills or from certain regions of, of West Africa?
0: In some cases, and in a lot of cases, they were what they call seasoned, first in the Caribbean or Central or South America in the islands. So they had, um, had a, some degree of learning the language, for example. There are some cases where people would bring in um, enslaved people from different regions just so they don't right away kind of form bonds that would, I guess, make them more apt to resist, if you will. But I did find cases of, um, I guess, merchants talking back and forth and knowing that this person has certain skills. So yes, I need someone that can do that. So then they they market the people.
1: Was... uh This development of of slavery in Pennsylvania, had this been part of the English culture going back further, or was it something that was being developed during the colonial era itself?
0: Slavery as we know it or think about it historically, there's a history of it forever, but what it became here is developing the colonial era because it becomes a race-based chattel thing that's developing along with colonization of the new world, if you want to call it that. So it's forming, it's growing, it's developing. They're having to come up with um, systems to codify what does slavery mean, what are the rules of slavery. That's all developing as the colonies are developing. And it develops a little bit different in each different colony to some extent.
1: Now, Pennsylvania as a colony had different groups of religious uh, believers and different ethnic groups. Uh, Did slave-owning break down on sectarian or ethnic lines?
0: Sadly, I wanted to find that Quakers never owned slaves, and no, um, they all they all pretty much did, but, but the one ethnic area that um, would be, I would say, less apt to own enslaved people were Germans. And some of the sources I found while working on this book, they kinda talk about why. Is it because, you know, the humanitarian aspect, are they more humanitarian, or are they averse to, to owning people and one source said no not really it was almost more um a clannishness among of their own you know just sticking with quote their own kind just other germans so i'm not sure the extent that that was altruistic or not approving of ownership or the extent to which it was that just sticking in their own enclaves, but Yeah, Germans were the ones. And the Germantown Petition, we always think of it, or I used to, and a lot of us do, as um, a Quaker thing or, you know, something to do with Society of Friends. But the sources I was looking at working on this, a few of them pointed out, yeah, they had become Quakers, they were part of the Quaker thing, but it was really more the German influence that led them to write that protest. So the German part was significant.
1: Uh, You mentioned earlier that Pennsylvania was in many ways built... Uh, by this slave labor and some of the skills. Uh, How did did it impact uh, institutions like financial institutions and and the establishment of uh, businesses?
0: Greatly, because some of the people who were trading in human lives then used that money to invest in other endeavors and so that money became foundational to um, other businesses. And also, you know, uh, transportation, businesses, other things that grew. They grew because of capital acquired through the use of enslaved labor.
1: Now, one of those figures was Robert Morris, who's one of the more prominent figures of the American Revolution, the founder of the Bank of North America. Uh, What role does slavery, slavery play in his wealth?
0: He was one of the ones trading people, and that money becomes money he can then use to invest. And so that's the foundation of what he had. Same with Benjamin Chu, which um, is another one that becomes vastly wealthy. Multiple holdings of land and on all the different homesteads and land holdings he has humans working there.
1: Uh, You mentioned earlier about, uh, the. I think you were talking about the the London coffee house in Philadelphia where uh, uh, slave auctions were taking place. If we had gone walked into a place like that, what, what would it have looked like?
0: It would have looked like um, just people sitting at tables talking. Sometimes they're more sitting like, you know, in, I don't know if um, you're familiar with an auction today, like going to an auction where I live. You just go in and you all sit around and they put in our case, you know, cattle or horses up and you bid. There was some of that, but the London one, the ones in town, it was, it just, that's what blew my mind. It's people sitting at tables, visiting with their friends, watching the people that are brought up, put for sale, deciding, oh yeah, I'll bid for that one. And like, it's not even a big deal in their mind that they're deciding the fate of another person.
1: Now, during this time period, uh, there were also indentured servants uh, coming uh, from Europe. Uh, was there a relationship between the use of indentured servants versus uh, the use of enslaved labor?
0: Yes. So, actually, um, a lot of the people who ended up owning enslaved people started out with indentured servants. And a lot of sources kind of show that that was really their preference. It was easier, right? It's a system that they've already got developed. They already know more about how to do that from England. And they felt more comfortable. They, they looked similar, you know. They liked that better. But here's the problem with indentured servants. You just get them, you, first of all, they've got a contract that protects them to some extent. Yes, they're worked very hard. I'm not downplaying that. But there is a contract. And that contract says how long they will remain in that position. So you get them trained up really well. They're doing what you need. And then boom, their term is over. So there's that. There's also when the various wars would come about, the indentured servants would be enticed away to go help fight the war. And so then you've lost your labor force. So enslaved people, you didn't have to deal with either one of those problems. Also indentured servants, when their time is up, you owe them at least some freedom dues, right? To go start start out. Well, with enslaved people, you'll never have that. So the preference at first was indentured servants, but that became problematic securing those servants. So enslaved people were brought in to fill the void. And then they learned, huh, this works out. It's cheaper, even more to our advantage to make money. Using enslaved people.
1: How did slavery uh, uh, move through Pennsylvania as settlers continued to move out from Philadelphia?
0: It went westward with them. Now it's it's in pockets. You know, you've got um, more of the iron area. You're going to have more enslaved people, and the, the south going south, east to southwest. So it fanned outward with settlement. But again, you know, it it was it just depended to some extent on where, what the settlers are doing when they get to their final destination in terms of how many enslaved people they took.
1: So as, as slavery is developing from, from the early years in, in the uh, colonial uh, area, uh, how did they develop uh, codes to govern the behavior of enslaved people?
0: That was part of the trick, right? Um, if you, When you're working with indentured servants, you've already got codes because you're bringing them with you from the homeland. When it comes to enslaved people you've got to build a new system. So they start to find ways to maintain their control as tightly as possible. Then you end up, for whatever reason, you have, you know, small population of free black people, and then that population grows. So then you also have the complicated, um, I guess, issue of working out how to keep enslaved people and free black people apart. So a lot of the laws that they make though end up affecting both enslaved and free blacks. For example, um, you can't be out past a certain time of day, or if you are out, you better have your freedom papers to show that it's okay to be out. That'll become a big deal as you get closer to the Civil War because if you're born free and your mom was born free, you don't have freedom papers. So um, that really perpetuates this racial divide that is the U.S., right? And those um, laws, they start out, I guess, good news for Pennsylvania, if you will, is that Virginia grapples with a lot of the issues first. So that's where you get laws like um, a person follows the status of their mother. So if your mother's enslaved, you will be, you're born into slavery. Well, Pennsylvania you know, uses that too. They all end up all the colonies do. Um but all these codes are what create this very unique US based slavery.
1: Now one of the figures you talk in, about in the book is Cuff Dix. Who was he?
0: Cuff Dix was um he was a guy who was determined to be free. I think that's a good way to, to describe him. I mean don't get me wrong. Most enslaved people were determined to be free. He happens to be one we have a historical record of. So he runs away and he gets caught and he runs away again. And at one point, um, the master or owner, he pierces his ear. And then there's a different point where he puts this collar on him, but he still keeps going. And the truth is we're not absolutely sure how his life ended, but from what I gather or what I presume based on the historical evidence and and where the ads for him stop is I suspect he was one who ends up going to fight with uh, the British in the revolution. But he, I just, I don't know, I get a kick out of him. I admire him. He just, he wasn't going to stop. And the more they would catch him, the more he determined he was that he was going to be free. (laughs)
1: Uh, One of the terms you use in the book is term slaves. What what did that mean?
0: Okay, that's one that um, I just really started using while writing this because I hadn't really thought about it before. But the the Gradual Abolition Act, it frees people born after a certain date, but um, they're not free till they're grown. So they are enslaved during that time. So they're a term slave. So that's kind of, hmm, that's one of the limitations of that act because it is gradual. And if you think about it, in our day and age, you know, to be 30, that's, what do they say, the new 20. You're still young. Mm-hmm. Back then, you weren't so much. And um, by the time you actually gain that freedom, you've worked you've worn your, you've worn yourself out because you had to. So you're free, but your best resources have been spent, so to speak.
1: Now, earlier you mentioned, uh, you talked about the Quakers and uh, their later role in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, can you talk a, l- a little bit about how anti-slavery sentiment evolved within the Society of Friends?
0: Sure. I think I see parallels well with that in any great conscious movement. You get... First, the ones who stop and really think about it. You get the Benjamin Lays of the world. and they think about, um, you know, slavery's wrong, I got to do something. So Benjamin Lay, he uh, observes slavery and what it looks like in, in the Caribbean and he comes up and he makes it his mission. He's going to tell people, this is a bad thing. we don't need to do this. Well, what happens when you're sort of a pioneer of, of any um, conscious movement? you're the weirdo, right? So at first people don't really want to listen. Now he does, he does do some extreme measures to get his message across. He, he, at one point he kidnaps a slave owner's child and he's got the child, the slave owner's panicking, like my child's gone and after a while he says, you know, he just had him, I think a few days, but maybe it was a couple days. I don't remember how long he had the child, but he's like, see how that felt? that's what you do to people all the time. Well, but then, you know, how does that look? That makes them look a little crazy, I guess. Another thing he does is he um, hollows out a Bible and he takes um, I think it's a sheep blood or whatever it is that he can fill with pokeberry juice, which is red. It looks like blood. And he puts it in the Bible, closes it, comes to church or to meeting, not church, to meeting. And he's got a sword and that's a big no-no for Quakers. And he stands up and he stabs the Bible with the sword and the juice squirts out. You know, people are covered by fake blood. Again, radical. You can decide to get a message out being radical or you can, you know, be a little more, I guess, respectable like John Woolman. So John Woolman writes a number of works, and he's more accepted by the establishment because of how he approaches it. But what really matters here is you've got people of all different mindsets, one or two here and there, sparks of light, bringing this idea out and not shutting up and pursuing it however they pursue it. I I would argue it takes both. It takes the radical and the calmer elements. And they push and they push and you just get one or two more and they add to it and one or two more. And eventually, within the society of friends, you get enough people saying, hey, come on, no, to where that starts to be a big enough factor that even those who continue to have economic interest in selling humans or benefiting from enslaved labor, little by little, they kind of have to accept, all right. True, It's not a good thing. So then they, being the friends, they um, decide reluctantly, stop buying more people, stop importing, and then, you know, emancipation. And then that is mirrored in Pennsylvania society. It's just like that, in steps. They stop by, um, first you stop the trade, and then you can end slavery.
1: Uh, was there something similar going on within other faiths, or was it really just the Society of Friends where this anti-slavery movement was growing?
0: They're the they're the pioneers. They're the first. Later, you'll get the Methodists, and we'll talk more about that later. But later, you get the Methodists, who um, they're another group or a sect that is opposed, but that is not. Um, it doesn't become as systematic or endemic in in the movement here as the Quaker movement.
1: Was there anything in the beliefs of the Quakers that made them perhaps more prone to to oppose slavery?
0: There are, and that's what kind of flummoxes me a little bit about the ones who hang on to it for as long as they do. I know it's cold hard cash, right? But what I love about the Quaker faith, and I still do, is the belief that um, every one of us has an inner light. And that inner light, if you want to call it the Holy Spirit, It's more like really the inner light can speak to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can speak to the inner light in any of us. Even I tell my students, even women, even people of color, anyone can be reached by this light. So then when you believe that, it kind of makes it harder to think it's okay to, to own groups of people and sell their children and do all the horrible things that come with enslavement.
1: Uh, you mentioned earlier the Germantown Petition and uh, Francis Daniel Pastorius was one of the key figures at that time. Who was he?
0: He he was one of those Germans that I had mentioned um, who comes over and he's part of... So the Germans within the settlement that becomes Germantown, they, they create their little area, their little part of the settlement. And he's one of the leaders of that. And they're just one of the first to really kind of go against... Slavery. Now, if you really look at the Germantown Petition, there's there's some complexity there. I don't know if um, you got to see or if you looked at it, but there is that slavery is wrong. There's also that by bringing people into this new world and owning them and treating them the way we do, we're making God unhappy, so God might smite us or you know, otherwise get retribution. We're also bringing people into this settlement, into our what becomes state, under conditions that are not friendly. And so wouldn't we at any moment, if we were in such a situation, try to rise up and fight back and perhaps kill our captors? Those are the kind of sentiments in there. So you see self-interest along with um, moral qualms, if you will. I just think that's so complex, and I think that's important for the whole abolition movement, whether we're talking the early period or we're going all the way up to the Civil War. What really makes the whole thing take off in broader society is when you can get self-interest in there. And so Pastorius is one of the first. He and and his his partners writing the petition, they're one of the first because they're talking about, yes, it's wrong, but also look, think, be logical. What could happen to us? if this continues. And that's a thread that we'll see all the way to the Civil War.
1: Uh, How did enslaved people resist their condition?
0: Well, a million ways. Um, My students usually get kind of frustrated, and they want to ask things like, well, why didn't they fight back? And the answer is they did fight back. Now, there are some who fought back, like, you know, poisoning masters or, um, you know, Well, Nat Turner, but that's not Pennsylvania. But that's not practical, though. That's really not. What is that going to do? In a society that is built upon a system of enslavement and protecting slavery, that kind of resistance is dangerous. So the real resistance, what I really think most of us would probably do if we found ourselves in a condition of enslavement tomorrow, is the day-to-day. Working slower where the master doesn't make as much money. um, Breaking tools that are essential to the job, then that cost the master money. Um, feigning illness today, if you can get away with it, that that would probably be hit or miss. Running away is a big one, and running away is going to become key in the um, in Pennsylvania's role in bigger abolition, like beyond the state. So running away, I think, is um, it, it's an important one, and then you get armed resistance, right? The cover of the book has some armed resistance that I think is pretty interesting. Um, but it's the whole gamut. And I tell what I tell my students, and it, it applies to the people I learned about while researching this book, is every one of us has a dif- different personality and our personality would influence greatly how we react to any kind of condition, from, you know, including enslavement.
1: Now you mentioned in the book uh, uh, the Pinkster Festival. Uh, what what was that?
0: That's where enslaved and then later um, some free black people also can participate but um, it's in Philly and they get together and they party and they have fun and they have mock elections and you know you and I may think well what good did that do? What are they electing? Well because it's just letting off steam and it's, it's creating their own version of things they see in the bigger world and it scared the heck out of some uh, white people because they did not want, um, any kind of congregation, any kind of getting together. And they thought that it sort of fostered more radical moves for independence.
1: Now, another figure you talk about in the book is Anthony Benizet, Who was he?
0: He was an amazing person. He, uh, well, most people think of him as a teacher and he was a teacher, Uh, after reading all of his stuff again I had read most of his stuff for previous work I had done but I read it all again for this and I'm really convinced more than ever he's the first I'm gonna say he was a historian because he was trying to seriously honestly chronicle life in Africa and what it was like in Africa now why he was doing that is he was trying to sort of counter stereotypes that um were very prevalent at his time that, you know, people of African descent, they came from uncivilized places. So we're doing them favors by bringing them here and, and civilizing them. And he wrote about Africa in ways that showed, no, no, we're not Their, their societies are just as varied. They have just as much going for them in a lot of ways. And we're ripping people out of them. And his work is just wonderful. It's beautiful because he, he's trying to, of course, fight for abolition. He's also trying to educate. People think of him as someone who educated black children. He educated everybody who would read his stuff. He was trying to educate us all and show us all better.
1: Uh, how did the American Revolution affect slavery in Pennsylvania?
0: The American Revolution, some people argue, is sort of like the, the nail in the coffin for slavery in Pennsylvania. Um, and that's that's a fair assessment because it brings about it brings about all kinds of phrases and and intellectual thoughts in the world that enslaved people are able to turn around and use to their benefit for example uh, the idea that we're all created equal well then you get black americans not just in pennsylvania but throughout uh, you know massachusetts pennsylvania's northern part of the world saying oh, hi, I would like some of that equality. You said we're all equal, so I'm a person too. So you get petitions, but you also get an opportunity to participate in the war, to show your equality, to fight for you know, this, this what's going to be a new nation. And then, so when you do that and you fight for this new nation, it, it gives you an opportunity to say, well, I fought too. I think of James Fortin right he was fighting he was um, on a ship and he gets captured by the British and they like him and they say you know if you, why don't you come live with us well you can we'll you know give you all kinds of support and you can get away from this place where you know there's slavery and he says no I'm gonna help build this country and he becomes one of the wealthiest Americans of his time so it's opportunity and um, you also, speaking of opportunity, you get situations where people will maybe promise someone, you know, okay, I'll tell my enslaved person, hey, if you come fight, I'll let you be free later, and then there you go. There's an obligation, so people gain their freedom that way. Now,
1: in 1780, uh, the Pennsylvania legislature passed the Gradual Abolition Act. Uh, what, what did it do?
0: It freed. It freed the next generation, would be a way to say it. Um, So if you're born after the date of passage, when you reach, it's different birth dates if you're a man or a woman, but um, when you reach the age of emancipation, you will be free. You will no longer be enslaved. Um, One of my colleagues, though, pointed out to me that there are so many loopholes in there that the whole term slave thing, so... If during that period while you're still enslaved, yes you're gonna be free, but you have a child, that child's born in slavery. So then they have term slavery. So that cycle could perpetuate and it did for many years. So I don't wanna be one of the people that says, you know, small change isn't good enough. Heck no, small change is good, that was that was something, but it was it had serious limitations.
1: So for for term slaves who would have been freed at twenty eight years old, did Uh, The slave owners decided to sell them outside of the state?
0: Unfortunately, some did, uh, more than we would want to think would, did. Also, some took pregnant enslaved women out of the state to have children so that those children would not gain freedom at any point. If there was a loophole, someone found it.
1: How did term slavery affect families? You often would have people who would be enslaved for life if they were born before March 1st, 1780, and then others who were not. And it, once they gained their freedom, they would they leave their families? What, you know, what, what kind of connection do they have then?
0: That's tricky, because if you want to stay near your family, it does limit your mobility, right? And a lot of people, not just in Pennsylvania, but um, other states, would end up choosing to be near their family in ways that limited their own opportunities. So it did. It limited a lot of people.
1: Was the Gradual Abolition Act seen as a a significant step in its own time?
0: It's seen as radical in its own time. Um, There are people who, so after the act passes, the next legislative cycle, the next group of people who are voted in, start trying to repeal it's kind of like the health care act today right you got people immediately trying to come in and and change it and repeal it and do away with it now they don't manage to but there is that effort from the get-go
1: how did slave owners try to defy the the provisions in the act
0: they well they would first of all simply not register enslaved people that they had kept um there were fines for that and there were penalties, but to some people it was worth a risk, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people got away with it. Others would, like you said a while ago, sell enslaved, or, you know, before they could gain their freedom, sell them. And then um, others would make sure that women had babies, you know, like take them to Virginia to have the baby. Because some people, or Maryland, some people, who may be like Benjamin Chu, he's, you know, we think of him as a Philadelphian. His main home is Philadelphia, but he's got plantations in other areas, so they can easily move where people are having their children.
1: Did the Gradual Abolition Act have any effect upon people who came from, say, Virginia or other states and brought slaves with them into Pennsylvania?
0: They were supposed to be able to stay six months, and then... They would have to leave. Now, this is significant because this is when it's the capital of the nation, right? And so many of the early leaders are from Virginia, or you know, other states where they have enslaved people, and they bring them with them. But they have, they're, if they're following the law, they have to rotate them out and switch them every six months. And uh, amendments, though, come along eventually and take that part away. But that that's a pretty big thing.
1: So as as a growing population of term slaves achieve their freedom, do you begin to see growing free black communities in Pennsylvania?
0: You do and that um, leads to a big backlash against abolitionists. Um, In fact, it's with the growth of the population, that's one factor feeding the growth of the population. People in Pennsylvania who gain their freedom here by this law. Another factor is Pennsylvania gains a reputation. It becomes this beacon of liberty. So enslaved people from other states run away and head right for, particularly Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania in general. And so then that grows the black, pop- the free black population. And the more the population grows, the more people who resisted abolition all along anyway become resentful and scared. It's the same kind of arguments we hear today about refugees and immigrants, and so they start to um, resist reformers even more. The Pennsylvania Abolition Society meets and, and they start talking, okay, previously, you know maybe there were people who didn't love what we did, but they didn't they didn't really fight us, so to speak now we're getting called out all over the place. You know, people are angry. What do we do? And as they start having that conversation, that was 1807 is the first writing that I actually find where they're kind of talking about stuff like that. It intensifies up to the 18-teens, which is butting up to a period in which um, colonization becomes a big idea. And by colonization, I mean what we call African recolonization, the idea that All right, the only way to end slavery is to then find a way to remove people, the former slaves. And so at first it's individual people that start to say, hmm, perhaps we could create settlements in the West, Western United States, what, you know, this continent. And then from there, other people start to say, hmm. What if we send them, and this quote drives me crazy, but back to Africa? People who've never been to Africa. By this point, you're talking, you know, generations who were born here. Well, we'll send them back to Africa. These ideas percolate, and they percolate not just among, it's not just racist or anti-black people who say it at first. Some abolitionists start to say it because they look around, and they say, you know, the angry people who didn't appreciate abolition are doing things like creating more restrictive laws that affect free blacks too. So what if we try to find a way to make it better for people once they're free? Hmm, let's talk about this Africa idea. The, P- the Pennsylvania Abolition Society even flirts with it. Now, they ultimately say, no, it's not what we want to do. It's not a good idea. But that's the kind of climate we end up with. And um, that backlash kind of halts further progress because what I mean by progress is that um, Gradual Abolition Act was limited. So right away abolitionists, they got it passed but then they say, okay that's a first step but now what we need to do is push for ending slavery outright, freeing people now. Let's work on doing away with the gradual part. And that gets hampered in this climate. So You end up with all kinds of ideas skirting around out there. What do we do next? And Pennsylvania ends up with one of, it starts out slow, but by the end it will become one of the strongest chapters of the American Colonization Society. And some of the people that joined that, they started out in the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. So it's a weird mix of all the people that become active in that. Movement.
1: Now, uh, as slavery was developing in the, in the colony of Pennsylvania, uh, we talked about the codes, the legal codes, that were developed at the time, uh, but in order to uh, establish slavery and, and enforce it, sets of beliefs and attitudes about race and, and uh, ideologies were developed. Now, as slavery begins to diminish in Pennsylvania, what happens to those beliefs? They
0: don't. They don't diminish. Um, they don't diminish anywhere in the U.S. Um, There is quite a bit of anti-abolition sentiment from the beginning, and it's from a number of sources. It is because the slave system that developed was inherently built upon what we would call racism. It had to be. There had to be some mechanism to keep, think about it, John Q, average person who's not gonna benefit from enslaved labor because he's just a laborer himself. How do we make sure to keep people apart? We make race a big factor. So going up into, towards the 1830s, that backlash I just Mm -hmm. talked about is a significant one to hamper further progress. And then um, you're gonna end up in a climate by the 1830s of rioting. And um, it's race, it's sort of race-based kind of rioting, but it's also anti-abolition rioting. It's a resentment towards free blacks and towards white people who are seen as you know friends of the free blacks and that culminates in into a number of events but the one that i've written about and focused on elsewhere too is the 1838 mobbing of pennsylvania hall in philadelphia that um building so what happens is abolition starts to break into a number of branches, right? Now, there's been this sort of historical argument that Pennsylvania is the home of that first wave of abolition, but by the 1830s, the heart of abolition moves to New England. That's absolutely not correct. Pennsylvania remains relevant and strong all the way through. They just morph in different ways. Um, There were people even in that early movement, saying that the ultimate goal is immediately ending enslavement. But if we can only get this law to pass that's gradual, then we're going to accept that and keep pushing. And that's what they're doing. And in that climate of them trying to do that, you get new groups that come about. So you've got the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. That's the original. Then you end up with the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, and the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society, and the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And all these groups start contributing to the movement, and, and they're all calling for the end of slavery, just in different ways. Well, they come together, and they build what was, by all accounts, one of the grandest structures of its time. It was one of the first buildings in Philadelphia to have gaslighting, and it was amazing. Um, there was a ground level with floors, uh, I mean, with stores on that floor and offices for the abolition society. And the newspaper was housed there, the abolition newspaper. And then on the second floor were some big meeting rooms. And then on the third floor was this amazing. What sounded just beautiful. Um, they called it the grand Sal- saloon, <laughs> but, um, it was just a gigantic room, and it had this really cool ventilation system that just sounded beautiful. And it was up for four days, up and fully open for four days before it was attacked and burned to the ground. And um, what I tell people when I talk about these things, and I tell my students is, we like this thought that there was a group in Philadelphia that woke up and said slavery was wrong, and maybe it splintered into other groups, but they're all working together because they know slavery is wrong and they're fighting. And that happened. But that was this many people out of that many of a population, right? So that many were not in agreement. And it was those that attacked. Some accounts say that even um, the local police were helping with that. And why, right? People may wonder why. Well, besides the competition of jobs from free blacks, there's also this notion that Pennsylvania, and I guess it did It did for certain people, depended upon trade with the South to continue thriving. So we don't want to upset the South, so we don't want to be the anti-slavery Mecca.
1: Did, uh, did free blacks in Pennsylvania have the right to vote?
0: They did until 1837. Now, we don't know the extent to which they took advantage of that right, but basically... What happens in 1837 is the legislature meets and someone in there throws in that, because they're talking about um, voting restrictions for propertyed people, you know, because up to a certain point you had to own a certain amount of property to be able to vote. So the question comes, well, you know, we want to open the franchise and, and say that you can have less property and still be able to vote. And during all that discussion, someone throws in the word white. White had not been in in the Constitution to that point. And it's during that, that's right before that mobbing of that hall that the vote is taken away from free blacks. And so you get people like, I keep using him as an example, but he's one of my favorites, James Fortin. The guy is very wealthy, and now all of a sudden he can't even vote.
1: You know, one of the institutions that was created in the 1780s was the Free African Society. Uh, what, what was that society and who created it?
0: That was created by um, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen. And it was what I would call, well, others have called a mutual aid society. So basically, what they're tackling is this. There's this notion, okay, if we have abolition and we, you know, let people be free those people will become a burden to society and free blacks like Richard Allen and Absalom Jones have always said no no they won't let me show you so they came up with um, ways to ensure what we would call self-help within their own community you know what if someone can't get a job we'll help them they won't become a burden to society so that's one of the main organizations that comes in to try to do that to support the black community and allow for um uh, community building, community empowerment—a way to show that Black Americans are just as valid as mem- members of society as White Americans.
1: They mentioned Absalom Jones. Who is he?
0: Absalom Jones. He—he um, is—he ends up being. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the church. He becomes one of the first independent Black ministers. Richard Allen becomes the founder of Mother Bethel, which uh, Bethel Church. Uh, and the founder of the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Those two gentlemen, what they did is they were part of St. George's Church, and that was a Methodist church in Philly, and they were important members, and they kind of got more black members to join the church and to pay, you know, pay dues as members. And because of the growth that they brought to the church and other factors, but the growth was big, they needed to expand the church so they helped raise money and they helped get you know expansions built on the church and not long after they get relegated to the balcony so to speak literally and when that happens they leave the church and create independent that's the first instance of an independent black church
1: now the book you say that reconstruction failed in pennsylvania why
0: Oh, reconstruction failed in the United States, sadly. Um, it failed in general because we, we meaning Americans, not just Pennsylvanians, have never yet completely opened the structure of our society for equality for black Americans. Um... The way Reconstruction would succeed, maybe that's a way to kind of illustrate what I'm saying. Reconstruction would succeed if you truly reordered the society to accommodate the people who are now free. Step one is freeing people, and that's fantastic. It's great to not be owned, but now what? Do you look at the structure of the government, whether it's state or federal, and make it change enough so that those people have an equal role, that's true Reconstruction. So um, in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society and black leaders were working towards that and trying before the backlash that I mentioned hit. Once the backlash hit, and this recapitulates in U.S. history, once the backlash hits, it's like to some extent giving up, black Americans never gave up, but their allies, they fought as hard as they felt they could, but that backlash just, it slowed them down too much. It slowed them down.
1: So as we get into, say, the 1830s and 1840s uh, with with term slavery and with Multiple generations continue to be born to, say, term slaves who then themselves are enslaved. What does slavery look like in Pennsylvania during that time period?
0: At that time, it's it's even more so small holdings, not even, well, holdings seems a weird way to put it, um, but working maybe like if I own a business, I have people that are working in the business with me or household slaves that um, do, the you know, cooking, cleaning, stuff like that. So it, it's still... Continuously varied, but you still have people. They're, they're not being auctioned, don't get me wrong. So that part's different, but they're still doing a lot of work on farms in the city.
1: How much risk did free blacks have during this time period of, of being captured and or enslaved or re-enslaved if they had already been freed in, in the South?
0: So um, that is a big risk especially it grows in the 1840s and it really becomes a factor with the fugitive slave law of 1850 so there's this gentleman named Martin Delaney he's one of my favorites I don't know if you picked up on that in the book um, he was born in what is now West Virginia It was Virginia at the time but they make their way to Pennsylvania his mom messed up. She taught him how to read and write and they get figured out. So she's free. The dad is still enslaved, but they end up running away. And, um, long story, they end up in Pittsburgh. He then, he grows up, he's educated in Pennsylvania. He's very educated. He, uh, Wants to be a doctor, gets into Harvard, but the white students don't like that. And so they complain. So he is then told that he can remain and learn to be a doctor only if he'll go to Liberia or, you know, the colony and and be a doctor there. And he says, no, I'm an American, so he won't. Anyway, he's fought all this time in various ways as an abolitionist. And when that fugitive slave law hits, he's one of the ones I just—he has this quote, basically— if they come from my family and cross my threshold, it's my duty to fight back. So you end up getting not only people kidnapped and, and taken south, but you also get more militants, I guess you will, within both the black and the abolitionist community, because at first your only true militants were some of the black leaders. Well, as that law hits, then you get more white allies saying, okay, this is just, this is wrong. So you get Pennsylvanians who do start to step up, not the majority, it's never the majority, but you get more who start to step up and say, no, there's right and there's legal and I'm going to do what's right. And so you get resistance to to that happening because Martin Delaney, he would have not had freedom papers. His children would have had freedom papers
1: now you say in the book that the central part of the state, Pennsylvania, uh, remained largely hostile to anti-slavery, in part due to economic and cultural ties to slaveholding in Maryland. Uh, what, what were those ties, and, and how did how did they shape the culture in central Pennsylvania?
0: You've got families who have relatives, you know, in those two regions. That, um, so you go okay. visit your cousins, right? They're they're your family. You know, there's also uh, economic ties. There's a lot of economic ties among the wealth in Philadelphia and southern products like cotton and just the shipping of those goods. So that money's coming in. And they really feel like their future and their prosperity is at stake if the apple cart is upset, so to speak, in the South. If the South stops trading, stops sending their raw goods up here, then what? But the the cultural, the family ties, that's just... Borders are sort of artificial things, right? We know that today. Um, So yeah, that's the line, that's the Mason-Dixon line, but you've got cousins across all those lines.
1: Is there a record of who the last person who was legally enslaved in Pennsylvania was?
0: I uh, checked with a friend who is doing work on this right now and he, he didn't have, he couldn't come up with it either.
1: Well, Beverly Tomek, she is the author of Slavery and Abolition in Pennsylvania. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.